This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Well, it's great to be here. I've got to get this mic off the stand. And you can see that I put a picture of Albert Einstein up here because, you know, what would happen to him today? Maybe in one school system, he'd go down an autism track. Another school system, go down a gifted track. Or some other place, get so addicted to video games, he wouldn't go anywhere. <laughs> I want you thinking about this. People get too hung up on the words of the label. You know, and I'm seeing, I've, I've been talking to parents where there's um, little kids that show a lot of a potential at an early age, and nothing's being done to develop that. So I just want you to think, what would happen to him today? There's a lot of different ways they can go. Another thing that's a big problem is silos in many different fields. You know, when I find I go do a talk at an autism meeting, okay, this is a meeting that's going to have both gifted teachers and autism teachers here, there tends to be very little crossover between the gifted world and the autism world. But there's a portion of the autism world that needs to be in the gifted world. And I like to make a point of, like, busting out of the silos. Today, I'm a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. I've been there for 26 years. And when I was a little kid, I had no speech at age three, lots of temper tantrums, classic autism. I was lucky to get into good early intervention. Now, the thing is, diagnosis is not precise. But I find the verbal thinkers get hung up on the labels. Now, the thing is, autism diagnosis is half based in science, and the other half is based on doctors squabbling in conference rooms. No, I mean, seriously. And they've kept changing the diagnosis. Who's sitting in conference rooms changing the diagnosis of measles or you know, some other disease like that? Nobody's doing that. But the problem we've got now, especially with the DMS-5, is you have this huge spectrum going from a kid who should be working at Silicon Valley, or maybe over here at Boeing, talk about local, or a kid that's very severe and they're not going to be getting a high-level job. And the problem is, they all have the same uh, label, especially with the new guidelines. We got to start looking at what a kid can do. So how did this mess get going where you have such a wide uh, spectrum with all the same label? And I think the reason for this is when the kids are very little, they look the same. When I was three, I looked absolutely horrible. No speech, repetitive behavior, no social contact. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd eat carpet fuzz and paper and things like that. And fortunately, I got into really good early intervention. And you get kids into good early intervention, some of them you pull out of it, and some of them you don't. It used to be Asperger's was socially awkward with no speech delay. You know, they've taken all the speech delay stuff out. You know, now you've got the, you know, the person that could be a Silicon Valley programmer mixed in with a kid with speech delay, one like me. And then you've got the ones, even if you work on them really hard, Unfortunately, they're much more impaired. A good teacher got to know how to work with these kids. I talked to a lot of families, and I said, if you got a three-year-old that's not talking, the worst thing you can do is to do nothing with them. Okay, let's talk about how we teach social skills. One of the things that helped me was 50s upbringing. The other thing I found interesting when I went to a gifted meeting is they had a seminar on teaching social skills. And I go, wait a minute, this sounds like an autism meeting. But then, when I went over to the book table, there was no overlap with the autism books. Then I go to an autism meeting, and there's no overlap with the gifted books. 
they should be overlapping. We've got to bust out of these silos. And for teaching social skills, you want to use what I call teachable moments. Or another name for this is, and I've got to get over here where I can actually see what's written on my slides, is old-fashioned 50s teaching. And the way it was done is, okay, we were having a meal, and let's say I ate the mashed potatoes with my hands. Mother didn't scream no or stop it. She said, use the fork. And I'll never forget, when I was at my elementary school cafeteria, third or fourth grade, and we had chocolate ice cream, and it was kind of melting, and I went like this, like a dog. And the teacher just picked it up and took it away and said, you're not a dog. That was a teachable moment. Um, and you might have in a single meal, you know, three or four of these teachable moments. Or maybe we're out shopping, and I grab candy bars. And instead of screaming no, you can just say, we're not buying candy today, put it back. Or you only touch the things you're going to buy. But that's teaching social skills in the real world as you do it. And sit-down, old-fashioned meals were really helpful for me. Also, please and thank you was taught. Shaking hands was taught. When I was eight years old and mother had a party, I had to greet the guests and shake hands. And you've got to teach these kids um, you know, how much pressure to use. Teaching social skills is like teaching somebody how to behave in a foreign country. And when I went to China last year, I learned that pointing like this is rude. You point like this. Somebody has to tell me. Now, if I go to the Middle East and I show the bottom of my foot, I'm not going to demonstrate that because it's like super, super rude. But somebody has to tell me that showing the bottom of my foot is rude. I have no way of knowing. And then another thing that's weird in China, they push and shove at the airport. I just couldn't believe it. Pushing and shoving getting off an airplane. Um, yeah, that would be like considered super rude here. Yeah, and I did not. Well, I kind of pushed up, but I didn't push and shove when I went to China. But what you do is you calmly give the instruction. Oh, wait a minute. Now I just managed to turn my presentation off. Okay. Um, what you've got to do with a lot of kids that are kind of different is you've got to stretch them. I'm seeing a lot of parents that tend to over-coddle kids, do all the talking for them. People get totally hung up on the label. They go, little Tommy's got autism, so we'll order his hamburger for him. I go, uh-uh. He's got to learn to order it himself. But what drives me crazy as a visual thinker is I go to the autism meeting and I see a little 10-year-old over there, a little geeky kid. And then I come over to this meeting and I see the same kind of kid. And they're going down different paths. And they are the same kid. See, one advantage for me as a visual thinker is I don't get hung up on the labels. But I've learned people that think in words can't seem to get away from the label. Now, we've got to be careful about sensory overload. Kids with a lot of different diagnostic categories, ADHD, autism, gifted, uh, whatever labels you want to slap on them, often have sensory issues. Also, no sudden surprises. Sudden surprises scare. And when I was 15, I had the opportunity to go to my aunt's ranch, and I was scared. So mother gave me a choice. I could go for all summer, or I could stay for a week. Not going was not going to be one of the choices. And I get asked all the time, how did you get interested in the cattle industry? I was exposed to it at age 15. We've got to get kids out and expose them to a lot of different things so they can find out what they like. You don't know you're going to like something until you try it. And I was an Easterner. I'd never had anything to do with beef cattle. I had never been in the West before until I was 15 years old. And I'm seeing a lot of parents that have a hard time letting go. I talked to one family of a teenager in his teens, uh, a recluse in his room, uh, editing video. 
and I suggested they should edit some video that their church needed editing. And I said, he needs to do it in the church office. He's got to learn how to work outside the home. And mom started breaking down and crying, saying she couldn't let go. I said, I'm talking about a church office one mile down the road. When I was 15, I was on an airplane flying from New York to Phoenix. Come on now. You got to stretch them. You got to stretch these kids. No recluses in the room. Now, provide choices of activity. Now, I just had one um, a mom was really upset. She's got a teenager, and he's doing really well, doing really well with computer programming, honors class, but he has no friends. He's going to get friends through shared interests. The only place where I had friends was the shared interest. And when I was in high school, it was horseback riding, model rockets, and electronics. Get involved with shared interests. Also, there was a penalty for throwing a great big meltdown or a temper tantrum, as it was called in the 50s. And when I was pitching that big fit, mother didn't scream at me, I'm going to take the TV away. But when I got all nice and calm, she'd go, well, you know the rule. There's going to be no television tonight. There needs to be consistent discipline between home and school. But on the other hand, I had lots of time for developing strengths. My ability in art really became evident around third grade. Art was always encouraged. Build on strengths. I spent hours experimenting with bird kites, experimenting with parachutes, lots and lots of time to um, do creative things. But then we had mismanners meals three times a day for half an hour. That was part of my bringing up. Had to sit through church even though I thought it was boring. But we've got to always provide time for creative things. And when the kid's bad, you never take away art or music or math or something that can be part of a career. Never, ever, ever. It's the video game you take away. <laughs> and I have a book that I did with Deborah Moore. And she worked on writing a really great chapter on video game addiction. If you've got kids that have this problem, you might want to pick this book up online, get it from Barnes & Noble. It's called The Loving Push, Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. And it's got a great chapter on dealing with video game addiction and all the scientific research along with it. And basically what you got to do is you have to wean them off of it, but you got to replace it with something else. You always have to replace it with something else. Something like, you know, auto mechanics. Let's look at the skilled trades. We have a huge shortage right now of skilled trades, especially diesel mechanics, auto mechanics, I know the, the airline mechanics at the Denver airport are getting ready to retire. And, oh, I've seen some real misfits come in and work on the plane, you know, long-haired, gray-haired hippies. And they're going to be retiring. And uh, tonight I'm going to show a picture of a jet engine with all the covers taken off. And when you take the covers off, it's really complicated. And we need people in skilled trades. I worked in the meat industry years and years working on construction. Worked with really smart millwrights. I mean, this was complicated stuff. And for some kids, a real high-level skilled trade is where they need to go. Don't stick your nose up at it. Um, yeah, I want the jet engine to work uh, when I go on a plane. Uh, I really would like to have it work. Ugh, I keep pressing the wrong button here. Um, now, some kids have um, sensory issues, you know, regardless of labels. You know, a lot of kids that have learning differences, sensory issues are real. When I was a little kid, loud noise hurt my ears. So you got a kid that's constantly plugging his ears. So he might want to wear headphones. 
okay, it's okay to wear the headphones during some really loud thing, but they got to be off for half the day. Because if not off for half the day, the ear gets more sensitive. So what you want to say, okay, you can have the headphones around your neck, but what you want to do is to try to not wear them. You want to, and this gives the kid control. Okay, I've got them there if I, gotta, if I really need them. Might just put them on for a second, but then try to get them off. Sometimes awful sounds are better tolerated if the kid can initiate the dreaded sound. You know, like maybe a fire alarm going up. Well, we don't want to turn on fire alarms, but uh, uh, some like microphone feedback. You see a microphone, they're scared it's going to feed back. Well, then let the kid take the handheld and move up towards the speaker. goes, ah! and he can back off of it. They tested my hearing. My hearing was normal. Now, some kids have what's called auditory processing disorder. And what that means is they don't hear the hard consonants. So some of these kids, you've got to speak more slowly to them, especially when they're young. Speak more slowly, enunciate the hard consonants. Because when I was uh, maybe five, and the grown-ups got talking really fast, it went into gibberish. So slow down, slow down, enunciate those hard consonants. This is going to apply to a lot of kids with a lot of labels, with lots and lots of labels. Uh, some people, when they get tired, all of this stuff tends to worsen when that kid gets tired. Another issue with brains that are different is tension-shifting slowness. It takes longer to shift back and forth between two different things. So when you're waiting for the kid to talk, let's say I ask him something, give him time to respond. Sometimes they're like a slow computer and they don't respond fast. Now this picture really shows very clearly here attention shifting slowness. Uh, there's eye tracking softwares being used to track the eye movements of people watching a movie. And the normal person is looking at the eyes and look at how fat, how much it goes back and forth. Tension shifting slowness. And you can get some really brilliant people, they're going to be somebody twice exceptional, that have this problem. And the autistic barely moved at all. I can remember being so frustrated. We had a little assignment when I was five, when I was in kindergarten. And it was a little workbook where I had to mark all the pictures that began with B as in beautiful. So I marked a suitcase down for B for bag. And I was so frustrated that the teacher didn't give me time to explain that in our house they were called bags, that I understood the B con uh, concept. And this is an example where the teacher simply didn't give me enough time to respond. Very, very, very frustrating. Now, there's other kids, and I know some really smart kids, and these kids tend to be auditory learners, kids that have visual processing problems. You know, I, do, I do not have this problem, but there's some kids that are brilliant auditory learners where they get problems where the image breaks up and pixelates. And these kids may learn through their ears. I'm a person that learns best through my eyes, but there's others that learn best through their ears. And their visual system, um, sometimes when they get really rattled, might break up sort of like a bad TV, and rapid motion tends to make it worse. High contrast, things like checkerboard floors, are very, very annoying to them. Now, you can have kids in college. I have ran into kids in college that have visual processing problems. And they're often having trouble in school. So what are some of the signs that there's something wrong with the visual system? Uh, hate driving at night. One of the big tip-offs is they hate escalators. 
because they can't tell how to get on and off the escalator. And when they go to read, the print jiggles on the page. Eye exams are going to come up normal. The problem's back here. See, back here in the back of your head, you got circuits for shape, color, motion, and texture. Something's wrong with those circuits, and they're not working together. Okay, you have a kid who doesn't know how to read. Ask them if the print jiggles on the page. This, I want to make it very clear. This does not explain all dyslexia, but there's a subgroup where this is a problem. And then they'll go, oh, we don't have evidence base for this. But the problem is you're mixing apples and oranges together. Not everybody with autism has this problem. A subgroup does. And uh, I'm going to show you some simple things you can do. Very simple things you can do. And so I'm like, oh, and this is evidence-based. Well, I have to say, I worked 20 years in the construction industry where I would sell a job, design a job, supervise its construction, and start it up. And my equipment's in all the major meatpacking plants. I designed a piece of equipment called the center track restrainer system. If you want to see it work, you can look up Beef Plant Video Tour with Temple Grandin. Beef Plant Video Tour with Temple Grandin. There's also a really cool Pork Plant Video Tour with Temple Grandin that's going to give you some respect for skilled trades when you see some of the complicated stuff there. Now, there's a simple thing that you can try with these kids that complain about the print jiggling on the page. It's called colored paper. Go down to a print shop and print a book on gray, tan, lavender, light blue, light green, all the different pale papers, and let the kid pick it out. And then there's some kids where the Erlen colored lenses work. But I know kids that have gone down to Walmart and shopped around, especially for the lavender and the pink glasses, and find some that help for $15. Okay, I'll tell you how I deal with evidence-based. If something is cheap, okay, the paper might cost $2 to try it. It's not dangerous, and it only takes a very short period of time to try it, like maybe half an hour. I've got very little evidence-based. And I have seen the colored paper trick work on a bunch of people. Now, if something is dangerous, very expensive to do, or extremely time-consuming to try it, then I've got high evidence-based. Boy, you better give me the journal articles. You better give me the proof. <laughs> but wouldn't it be stupid to flunk out of college because you didn't have lavender paper in your printer? That would be really stupid. Or change the colored background on your computer and change the fonts. Something that's in your computer that's free. And it was right there in the computer. You didn't even know it. I've seen this work on too many people. Another trick on dyslexia, again, it doesn't work for everybody, is a slot in a piece of cardboard. Where you make the slot either one row of text wide, two rows of text wide, or three rows of text wide. And you try it, little pieces of cardboard, and you just slide it down the page. What's a piece of cardboard? It's free off the back of a notepad. You need a pair of scissors to cut it. You know, you might as well try it. Things are that simple. And uh, then if you find somebody where this seems to work, yeah, the only advantage to the Erlen lenses is you can get the exact perfect color. And that might be an advantage. But you can do all these other things first. I tend to like the colored paper better than overlays because overlays tend to get scratched up. And I found the students I've worked with have all preferred the colored paper or the colored computer background. Okay, severe sensory problems. There are some individuals, even real high, high smart, gifted individuals, where when they get a lot of noise around, 
they have a really hard time screening out background noise. That can be a real problem. Okay, now this is a, a treatment for sensory problems that is evidence-based. I don't particularly care for the title of the paper, but it's called Environmental Enrichment's Effective Treatment for Autism. I think the environmental enrichment would also be an effective treatment for TUID, possibly for dyslexia, possibly for sensory processing problems. But the thing I liked about this paper is it's evidence-based, and it's not expensive or that time-consuming to try it. And what you do is you stimulate two senses at the same time with a lot of emphasis on aromatherapy or and touch. To find the paper online, you need three keywords to type in online. Autism, environmental enrichment. You have to have those three keywords to find this paper. Autism, environmental enrichment. And so you might be stimulating smell with maybe a cinnamon smell and touch carpet. The other principle is you always change the pair of senses you stimulate. It's always changing it. And a lot of emphasis with one of them being touch or smell. And it uses regular household things. Nothing expensive here. It's easy to use things. And it seems to work on desensitizing sensory problems. And the kids were evaluated by psychologists blind to treatment. You are talking about a controlled, proper scientific study here. Lots of papers really exciting. And if you're doing ABA with little kids, it's an adjunct. It does not replace speech therapy or ABA. It's something you would do along with it. Now, this, these are books written by people on the severe end of the spectrum. See, the big problem we've got in the autism field is you're going all the way from somebody that ought to be going to Silicon Valley or maybe be a top artist to somebody who can't dress themselves. They have the same label. And I'm seeing bad situations. And I saw one just recently. I went to a brand new autism school. And there was four or five kids in there, very, very severe, some in wheelchairs, all nonverbal. And then there's one 12-year-old doing something stupid online in that class. That 12-year-old shouldn't be there. You see, this is where people overgeneralize about the labels. But there's some nonverbal individuals that um, uh, actually are intelligent and can type independently. And they describe absolutely scrambled sensory. And the, my favorite book of these, and you can, Barnes & Noble, I'm sure can order this for you, How Can I Talk If My Lips Don't Move? You will get insight into absolutely scrambled sensory processing. Now, I realize most people here are not working with these guys, but there are some people even that are really uh, gifted that have a milder version of this. Scientists have learned a lot about the brain. And where you get abnormalities is in the inter-office communication between different brain departments. Okay, kind of imagine that the brain is like the Apple's new office building. You've got this big mothership, and in the perimeter, you've got the gray matter. But we've built this really strangely. To connect up the inter-office communication, there's fiber optic fibers that go across the circle in between. That's the white matter. That's the white matter cables that connect up the different departments. And when you have an area of extreme talent, you may have extra circuits in things like visual thinking or math, but you got less circuits for social. See, I think a brain can be more cognitive or thinking, or a brain can be made more social-emotional. And if you got rid of all of the genetics that causes autism, you're not going to have anybody to work at Silicon Valley. You're not going to have anybody to work at Boeing. 
You see, a little bit of this trait gives an advantage. Too much of the trait, an extremely severe handicap. And it's a very complicated genetics. You can forget what you learned about Mendelian genetics. It goes way beyond that. Little tiny code variations, hundreds of them, that all add up. We need to be looking at a lot of personality traits, more like a music mixing board. When does socially awkward but gifted become an abnormality? There's no black and white dividing line. You know, you can be more anxious or less anxious, more sad or less sad. There's a point where it becomes depression. More visual thinking, less visual thinking. Think about Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences. And each one of those is a sliding volume control on a music mixing board. I think this is one of the best ways to look at complex genetic traits. See, I like to have visual images. And you can adjust the volume control in different places. And one of the questions that always keeps coming up is innate talents versus learning. Of course, Malcolm Gladwell says you can get enough practice and enough access to teaching. It's all, all uh, learning. But where I think innate makes the big difference is on extreme ability or extreme disability. Where you're really good at something or you're really horrible at something. And then in the middle, you can move the switch back and forth. But you're not going to take somebody that's an extreme verbal thinker and turn them into visual thinker. You know, there's some flexibility there in the middle, but there's some people that are just born, I think, with extreme innate abilities in certain things. See, when you hear a word, see a word, speak a word, or you think about a word, different parts of the brain turn on. And where things are different is in the white matter cable bundles that wire up the different parts of the brain. There's my head. Now, that is what's called the connectome. And this imaging was done on uh, the state-of-the-art uh, diffusion, uh, high-definition uh, tensor imaging by Walter Snyder at the University of Pittsburgh. And our defense department paid for the development of the scanner to look at head injuries. And boy, I can tell you, they're not pretty. And what happens there is circuits get ripped. And you can see them ripped like bundles of spaghetti. But in developmental differences, it's they grow differently. They're not ripped. Now, you can see down at the bottom of the connectome, little tiny threads there. Those little tiny threads are single nerve tails, or axons. And you can have circuits about that go across the whole entire brain that go into bundles, wiring up different parts of the brain. Now, genetics can't tell every nerve cell where to go. That's why you can have identical twins, where maybe one is severely autistic and the other one might be just uh, kind of geeky and smart. Because it's about 10% of variation Genetics can't tell every little fiber where to go. It just tells approximately where to go. Too complicated. And I think my connectome's really pretty when you take the head off. <laughs> but what this new scanner can do is track an individual little fiber the whole way through. And it can tell where fibers cross and where fibers intersect. Older type imaging could not do this. Now, why? It's, are methods like this not being used to, to look at uh, things other than the head injury? I think it gets into turf guarding and gets into silos. Because you could use this imaging I'm going to show you later to look at things like, uh, you know, why a kid has language delay. Yeah, but then you'd get rid of all the labels. And then you'd take autism and chop it up into its component pieces. And being socially awkward is one of them. But the gifted kids have that too. They're also socially awkward. Yeah, there's crossover there. But when they have the verbal silos, don't have to cross over. Now, that is a normal speak-what-you-see circuit. 
that goes from the visual cortex to the language area. It's a bundle of axons, a bundle of nerve tails. That's mine. And I've got a lot of extra fibers there. That probably explains. You give me a key word, I get pictures, just like Google for images. And it is associative. All right, I want someone to give me a keyword. Give me a keyword right now. Okay, it might get more creative than horse. That was used in the movie. What? Paintbrush. Okay, I'm actually seeing right now little paintbrushes that I used when I was a child. I'm seeing paintbrushes I used for oil paints in high school. I'm seeing my sign painting brushes. Back when I was doing my sign painting work, I'm seeing different sign painting jobs. And then I can get off the subject, because now I'm seeing a sign I painted for a feed yard called Spur Industries back in the 70s. So now I'm seeing myself working cattle at that feed yard. So that's how I got from paintbrush to working cattle. You see, there is a logic there. It's not just random, because I went from sign painting, then I started looking at sign painting projects, then I saw this blue and white sign I made for Spur Industries, now I'm seeing myself working cattle at Spur Industries. You see, there is a logic. It's not random. It is associative thinking. It's associative. It's not linear. Now, this is where the different kinds of minds can work together. Associative thinkers tend to be very creative, but they need structure. That's why a lot of my books have a co-author, because I've got to have the linear thinker <laughs> to give it structure. And when I did my book, Thinking in Pictures, which where I did not have a co-author, Betsy, my editor, about ripped her hair out editing it. And she did almost no line editing. What she did was what I call chunk editing, moving sections around and getting a better structure. Now, if you look at these slides, at what point does an extra branch become abnormal? If you were to take this scanner, and nobody's done this yet, and this scanner is going to get out into the hospitals, but nobody's using it. Nobody's using it. It's a $100,000 upgrade on the top-of-the-line Simon scanner. You know, by scanner standards, it's not even very much money. But to really start to use the scanner, you've got to get a lot of people to norm the test. So if you scanned 100 people, just any people, at what point does an extra branch there become an abnormality? There's no black and white dividing line. You see, a person can be more of a visual thinker or less of a visual thinker. But my mind works like Google for images. Now, and the, and the memories come up just like they show in the movie. The movie made them come up a little bit too fast. But other than that, the movie showed it correctly. Now, I paid a price for these extra bushes. And then there's a point where it does get abnormal. I had severe speech delay. And if you count the number of fibers for Speak What You See, I have less fibers. So basically, I had less bandwidth. Now, I think it's probably possible to increase the bandwidth on the fibers that you have. The thing is, this scanner is an absolutely fantastic tool, and nobody's using it. I think some of this has to do with being in the silos. There have been scanning tools. There's plain old functional MRI that can diagnose face recognition problems, and some of those problems, that's 15 years old. Old-fashioned functional MRI, it's been around for years. Nobody's using it. It's in the research literature. It's evidence-based. It's really clear. Now, there's my circuit for speak what you hear. And I don't have a very big auditory circuit. I am not an auditory learner. I learn better by reading. 
Also, I have a lot of problems with following verbal instructions of long sequences. So if I got a job at McDonald's uh, cleaning an ice cream machine, I need a pilot's checklist, boom, 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 steps for teardown, steps for cleaning, steps for reassembly. And I'll need that pilot's checklist probably for about two weeks. But I do not remember long strings of verbal information. I worked so much better with written instructions. And when I had to work on a team project, I had to work on team projects on some animal welfare guidelines. I just worked on this a couple of years ago, recently. And we were sitting in this big room full of people, 15 people around a big conference table. And I just said, and I didn't bring up autism, I just said, I need homework. Give me a specific part of this document that I am to write. How long do you want it? You want this format. You want the references in this way. And I will write that part of the document. And I work a lot better if I do that. Then you got to learn that um, you find mistakes in other parts of the document. You don't rub their noses in it. <laughs> that you don't do. You know what you do? You just correct it. No track changes. That's what you do. Just correct it. And you make sure that these are technical mistakes, so there's no opinion here. It's stuff that's just technically wrong. You know, it's like saying the sky is, the sky is purple when it really isn't or something. Okay, here's a picture that a kid labeled autistic drew at age nine. Most kids don't draw perspective drawings. Now, the situations where you see the different kinds of thinking show up often happen around third and fourth grade. When I was five, my art was not anything special. There are some exceptions where it shows up earlier, but a lot of kids it shows up second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Second, third, and fourth grade. That's when you start to find out you have a little artist or maybe you've got a little mathematician. And I see too many situations where they make that little kid do baby math and then they wonder why he's a behavior problem. Recently, in fact, just in the last year, I went and observed a fourth grade classroom, regular classroom, and they were doing shapes. And I go, wait a minute, these kids don't, should have protractors and should be measuring the angles when they're learning about triangles and pentagons and the different shapes and cutting them out and seeing how they fit together. They had no hands-on learning. See, a lot of kids that are kind of different, they're hands-on learners. Here's a picture a young man sent to me to show how he had movies in his head. Yep, that's how I think. Pictures in my head. That's how I think. Now, when I was young, I used to think everybody thought in pictures. And it was a real insight, gave me insight, when I learned that other people think differently. And then when you start to learn that other people think differently, then you can start to see how different kinds of thinking styles can fit together and work on projects. Let's take the iPhone, for example. An artist made that interface. That wasn't made by an engineer. Steve Jobs couldn't do one lick of programming. He was an artist. Then the engineers had to make it work. So I swipe it like this, then I swipe it like that, and I go like that for airplane mode. Boom, boom, boom. Well, an engineer had to make that work. That's the more mathematical mind. See, that's the art mind and the mathematical mind working together. Otherwise, you wouldn't have an iPhone. Because if it had just been designed by engineers, it'd be so complicated on the interface, nobody could understand it. <laughs> this is one of my facilities in a large meatpacking plant. You might wonder why curved. Well, as they come on around the bend, they think they're going back to where they come from. Cattle like to go back to where they come from. This is all steel and concrete work. When I was a little kid, I loved to make things. 
And if you could make it out of thin cardboard, or you could make it out of paper, scissors, scotch tape, thread, things like that, I made it. You know, like kids that like to make things, let's, um, let's encourage that. And I was horrified when I went on Google Images about, um, oh, I don't know, six months ago, and I typed in kids in costumes. And looking through the pictures of children in costumes and kids in costumes, I only found one or two pictures where it was homemade. All of the other costumes that I saw were store-bought. I found some box trolls that were homemade. And then for the Minecraft costumes, uh, yes, they, they tell you to go out and uh, waste a cartridge on the color printer to print the Minecraft thing on boxes. I'm going, no, we're going to use poster paints. To use up a $75 printer cartridge, that's just absolutely, totally beyond insane. One mom really dealt well with a Minecraft addiction. She, made, she had some two-by-fours cut up at the lumberyard and then had the kids sand them and paint them. So now there was Minecraft blocks that the kids used in the driveway. About six months ago, I went to a maker fair in Boulder, Colorado, where they had all of these events for kids. Cardboard boxes they could cut up. Um, they had drones they could fly. They had all kinds of electronic 3D reality stuff. But you know what the biggest hit was in the whole place? Cutting up cardboard boxes with hacksaw blades. You can, take, you can give kids a half a hacksaw blade with taped, and that makes a really safe little saw for cutting a heavy cardboard. And the boxes ruled. That made me happy. That when they had the access to the boxes, they'd rather make forts and cut up the cardboard boxes than play with the drones or with the 3D glasses. Now, we've got to do some of these activities so we get them off some of these screens. There's an aerial view of one of my projects that was created for the movie. What I really liked about the HBO movie is that they showed all my work stuff. My actual real drawings were in that. When I was in my 20s, what motivated me to work on my projects? There's the beginning of some of my projects. What motivated me is I wanted to prove to people I wasn't stupid. That was a very big motivator. When I took, um, I started this project here, the McElhaney Cattle, in 1976, um, I was maybe at the 60% knowledge level. I knew how to design the cattle handling. Well, you can see the concrete uh, formwork and stuff they're doing there. I didn't know how to do the reinforcement rods. You can see the reinforcement rods in there for this job. And when Gary Oden from McElhaney Cattle Company came up to me in 1976 and asked me if I would design his dip vat, I said, give me three weeks, because this is pre-internet. I knew I had to call up the USDA to get the drawings on how to do the rebar. I went through the door. The door opens for only a second. And I read an interesting thing that Sheryl Sandberg, a Facebook um, lady, said that a man will take a job at the 60% level, but a girl often doesn't have enough confidence. I went through the door. But on the other hand, I provided myself enough time to get the knowledge. Because I've worked for years in the meat industry, and I saw a meat salesman wreck a plant because he thought he knew everything. It was a $15 million plant destroyed. Uh, big know-it-all. Tried to build things in five seconds. It did not work. Yeah, that's being stupid about it. You want to take the job at the 60% level, but then you've got to have to work and get your knowledge. And I did. I went around to every dip vat in Arizona. I read everything I could find. There's one of my drawings. When you're a weird geek, you sell yourself by showing off your portfolio. 
You make portfolios of work. Tell you a little secret. Silicon Valley is a no barrier of entry industry. They could care less what your degrees are. You show them the right code. Let me tell you the hot languages. You can get them for free on Khan Academy. There's free computer classes online. They are JavaScript. That makes Minecraft work. JavaScript. They're Ruby, the jewel, Ruby. Python, a snake. Write these down. JavaScript. And the lessons are free. Python, Ruby, and C++, Charlie++. Uh, they are all available on Khan Academy. I checked it just a couple of months ago. I didn't understand the classes, but I know the website works. And they got the right price for our low-income folks. They're free. Now, let me tell you another little secret to promote, just promote yourself online and to find there's a magic word called forum. And you use this magic word, forum, with other keywords like computer forum, programming forum, art forum, theater forum, whatever you're interested in, stick that word forum. It gives you a different bunch of websites and places where you can put your work up there. But don't put rubbish up there. Make sure you only put your good stuff. And you've got to remember, if you're putting programming up there, that um, normally if some manager's looking for programmers, they don't put in the code. So make sure each piece of code that you want to show off has a title, like maybe JavaScript to animate such and such on this platform with this much memory. Something that when somebody types in there verbally, they might find your piece of stuff to look at. Show that portfolio. And there's another picture of one of my drawings. And people thought I was weird, but when I showed them these drawings, I got respect. And when I was in my 20s, nobody knew I had autism. Let's make the talent come first. I'm seeing too many kids getting totally hung up on their autism. When I was a little kid and when I was in high school, it was all about building things, inventing things. I had a great science teacher when I was in high school. Got me interested in science, got me interested in things. But I'm seeing so many kids get all they want to do is talk about autism. No, I never put any autism stuff on any of my my stuff, uh, my brochures or anything I used. And I was talking to one lady, she was a very good artist, and she wanted to do some commercial art. You know, I started out my business freelance, and uh, she, she wanted to like, uh, do art for you know, car dealerships and things like that. But then she had this website with all this crazy science fiction art, and I suggested, why don't you have one domain name, it's totally different for your commercial art for regular businesses, and another domain name is totally different for your really weird stuff so that the car dealership customer doesn't get into the weird stuff. You know, you probably all heard about my squeeze machine. I certainly never put any of that on any of my cattle stuff. I kept that totally separate. Now, when I first started realizing that my thinking was different was when I asked a verbal thinker to think about a church steeple. I was shocked to find out that in seeing, she just saw this vague generalized image. I just see specific ones. I go, a vague, generalized thing? This is what's called top-down thinking. These pictures come into my memory, starting off with childhood ones, maybe ones in Fort Collins where I live, famous ones. And then the more steeples that I see, I can make them into categories. My concept of what a steeple is, is based on many different images. And then I can sort them, New England type, chapels, uh, cathedrals, famous ones, you know, put them in different categories. 
It's bottom up. It's not top down. People that think verbally tend to be extreme top down. And I sometimes see way too much of that in education. They want to ram every kid into the same theory. That doesn't work. Another thing I'm learning is that being in the construction trades affects how I approach things. When you design jobs, supervise their construction, and then start them up, it's all about finishing jobs, making them work. So what's the purpose of education? If this smart kid ends up on Social Security playing video games, we failed. That's a failed project. That's like that $15 million plant that uh, had to be closed. It failed. But success is stay out of trouble with the law, get and keep good careers that you like, be reasonably happy, maybe you have a family. That's success. It's about finishing jobs. And after 20 years in this industry, working with all, most of the major meat companies, my stuff's in most all the major meat companies, it's only been recently that I realized how much being in the construction trades affects how I think. You gotta finish stuff. You just gotta get that job done. There's an urgency. Like if we didn't have parts, we got on the horn and we called and we called and we called until we got parts. You had to figure out how to do it. I'm seeing a lot of parents today that are very passive. I suggested to one mom that her kid needed to learn some work skills. And we need to find paper route substitutes. I know the paper routes are gone. I know that. And I suggested having the kid walk dogs for the neighbors because I want a job experience outside the home. And the mom goes, we don't have a program for that. I'm going, really? Can't you talk to the next door neighbors? <laughs> I'm very concerned about a lot of people today, especially some younger parents, there's no problem solving skills. And I think this gets back to not doing hands-on things. Also, a lot of young people have absolutely no idea what the cloud is. That's another very, very interesting conversation. You mean, really? The movie lives in the cell phone tower? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, wait a minute. Got to talk about this slide. Using an older type of imaging, this is the old type, at the University of Pittsburgh, they found out I got a big visual thinking circuit. A really big visual thinking circuit. That was sort of fun to say that. All right, now we're going to see the wrecked math department. See, the thing about when you're really good at something, there's something else you're really bad at, usually. And we got to work on building strengths. And you can see the blue part there, the left parietal area. That took out the working memory. I got crappy working memory. I um, couldn't do algebra. I am finding a lot of kids that are visual thinkers like me, regardless of label. Maybe they're labeled anxiety. Uh, maybe they're labeled dyslexic. Maybe they're labeled just weird. Whatever. The art kids, the art kids um, often have trouble with algebra. And they can do geometry. So let's jump them to geometry. Let's just do that. Well, that wasn't done with me. They pounded away on algebra. So how did I manage to get through college? Because in 67, thank God, the top-down educators, the theory was finite math. Probability, matrices, and statistics. That was the math requirement for college in 1967 for the whole country. That saved me. Absolutely saved me. But algebra, I would have been sunk. But I'm seeing too many kids get up against the algebra wall and getting locked out of uh, going to trade school. I went, one horror show was back in New Jersey. I gave a talk at a community college, and I would have really trashed them if I'd known it before my talk. They wouldn't let a girl take biology until she'd passed algebra. 
I got straight A's in biology. This is absolutely ridiculous. Okay, this is one of my most important slides, the different kinds of minds. Yes, and I've got evidence based for this too. And it's in my book, The Autistic Brain. I wish I'd actually titled this book Different Kinds of Minds instead of The Autistic Brain, but the publisher wanted to call it The Autistic Brain. But in the Autistic Brain book, and it's out there on the book stand, I got evidence-based that there are two types of visual thinking. There's the photorealistic object visual thinker and the pattern thinker or mathematical thinker. This is evidence-based, and all the scientific references are in the Autistic Brain book. And when you buy that book, why don't you just imagine that the title really is Different Kinds of Minds. <laughs> I, oh, I, I wish we'd titled it that. I'm, but I got overruled by my editor. I don't think she was right on that. <laughs> okay. For the visual thinkers have trouble with algebra. Go to geometry. Go to trig. Now, let me tell you something interesting I learned on Google for Images. I was talking to one of, to one of our uh, staff members at CSU. They got a little autistic kid, needs some fun things to do in math. And I suggested going on Google for Images and typing in geometry. And when I did this, I found fabulous web pages, visual web pages for geometry that I didn't find when I just used regular Google. Use Google for Images, type in geometry on Google for Images. You find fabulous entries to web pages. Then I type in trigonometry, and I got a lot of visual stuff. I typed in calculus, and even calculus on Google for Images. About 20% of it was visual. And then I typed in algebra, and I got fonts that were pretty. And that's all I got. It just didn't have anything that was visual. Now, in your brain, there are circuits for what is something. That's the visual thinker. That's my kind of mind. I have extra what is something circuits. Now, the kid that's going to be good at engineering and good at computer programming, he's got more circuits for where is something. In other words, where are you located in space? There is neuroscience that shows very clearly that in the brain there is what is something circuits and where is something circuits. And the where is something circuits is the mathematical pattern thinking where you're located in space. And then there's some guys that are very verbal. They know lots and lots of verbal facts. And then there's some where they are strictly an auditory learner. And that's not me. I had a student that was very good at animal behavior, but instead of looking at what animals were seeing, she was looking at what animals were sounded like, the tone of their voice. There's two ways to do the algebra, verbal or visual spatial. Then we get into the big fat fight. I know in Common Core, I'm making kids show their work. Teachers don't understand that these little math whizzes don't think the same way. What matters is the outcome, getting the job done. Get that job done. You need to think more like building contractors. Now, I would take some precautions against cheating. Okay, we're going to bring them in. Hands on top of the desk at all times. Uh, there's been kids that, you know, put it up their sleeve and write it on their leg and it's, or it's in some electronic thing in their ear. And you do it, your hands on top of the table, stripped of electronics, fine. I just want to take a little precaution against cheating. And then once I've done that, then you just got to realize they don't think the same way. Because unfortunately, there are kids that cheat. I had a very discouraging conversation with a lady who ran the special ed testing room in a local college. 
and they had to put video cameras in there to spy on it because like one girl had pulled up her dress and, and written answers on her leg. <laughs> this wasn't 20 years ago. This was five years ago. Okay. This shows the mind of the pattern thinker. This praying mantis is made out of a single sheet of folded paper. Extreme origami. And what you see in the background is the folding pattern. Boy, this is not my mind. <laughs> not my mind at all. But that is made from a single sheet of folded paper. No taping, no cutting. We made that. There are some great little origami stars. Origami is a great thing for kids to be doing. Well, when I was a teenager getting bullied and teased, I loved all the hands-on things. If I hadn't had hands-on things, I would have just gone nowhere. But my ability in art was always encouraged. I had paints, I had paper, I had all kinds of things. And, and I talked to a lot of families that are really low income. When I was a real little kid, my, my materials were typing paper. Now today it's printer paper, same thing regular white paper. Then my, uh, I got these pieces of cardboard out that came from the shirt laundry. And I only had five of those a week. That material was precious. I was too little to cut the big cardboard because I didn't know about the hacksaw thing. But I had um, string and thread and tape, thin cardboard paper, uh, old scarves I'd use for parachutes that were just throwaway old wrecked scarves, coat hangers. If I could, was able to cut those, but made a notch and then bent it back and forth enough. And I was always making stuff. Teaches problem solving. We got to get hands-on things back in the schools. So how do I think about something abstract when you're thinking pictures? When I was five, I had to learn the Lord's Prayer. I had no idea what it meant. But when we got to the power and the glory, I managed in a rainbow with an electric tower at the base of the rainbow. And that picture's not Photoshopped. That is for real. Now, this is an important concept in looking at different ways that people think. My thinking is bottom-up, not top-down. There's two ways to solve problems. You make a big hypothesis, cram the data into it. Or it's more like epidemiology. You want to find out where the disease outbreak is. Well, somebody got sick here. Then they got sick over here. Then they got sick over here. Then you try to figure out what's the common factor of them getting sick. That's epidemiology. That is forming the hypothesis by piecing together bits and pieces of data. That's the way I've, I learn concepts. Concepts are formed with specific examples. Where top-down thinking, you might have a vague dog concept. Well, when I was a little kid, I sorted animals into three categories. Horse, really big. Dog, medium, because there were a lot of labs and golems. Cat, small. So that worked for about a year. And then the neighbors got a dachshund. <laughs> and this dog was the same size as a cat. So I had to figure out, well, why is Rosie the dachshund not a cat? OK, she barks. That was an auditory feature she shared with dogs. She smells like a dog. And her nose is the same shape as a dog's nose. So I found sensory-based features that would put Rosie in the dog category. And then as you see more and more dogs, I can sort them into like, you know, sporting dogs, toy dogs, lots of different breeds. But it's bottom-up thinking. It's not top-down. And here's a little kid sorting. He drew a picture of boxes in his head. And he's sorting cats and dogs into different categories. See, for me, categories is the beginning of concept formation. You know that old game of 20 questions? 
Okay, the first question you ask is an animal, plant, or mineral. Okay, let's say I'm thinking about a doormat. Animal, plant, or mineral. Well, it's plant. Then the next question someone might ask is, would you use it outside? Yes. Would you use it in a sport? No. You see, then you ask questions. You try to figure out in 20 questions what the thing the other person's thinking about. That's category thinking. We used to play that game all the time. And that's really good at teaching concept. The other thing you got to teach these little kids that are real impulsive, they got to learn how to take turns in games. We got to teach that really young turn taking. You got to wait and take your turn. And that was taught to, taught to me and my sister with the Parcheesi board. Play games with categories. And then you can learn. An object can be red. <coughs> an object might be round and red. It might be in more than one category. The autistic mind picks out the details first. Now, this is a test for Gestalt. And you get people say, pick out the big letter or pick out the little letters. My mind picks the little letters out faster. Now, when I was a little kid, I got bullied and teased in high school, and I was called tape recorder. And why was I called tape recorder? Because I always use the same words. You know how you get around that? you got to get kids out doing things. Too many kids are becoming recluses in their room. Uh-uh. Give them choices of activities they can do. But then they can't become a recluse in their room. Now, I always get asked about homeschooling, public, private, or whatever. I don't really want to hear those arguments. Because so many things depend upon the specific situation. Okay, one kid's doing great at the local public school. Another kid's over at a private school. He's doing awful. You know, it... So much depends upon the particular teachers, the particular situation. Now, I was one of the kids where a normal, large high school did not work. I got kicked out of ninth grade for fighting. And I ended up going to a special boarding school for gifted kids with emotional problems. That's what I was called. And for the first three years I was there, all I did was clean horse stalls. The parents were not very uh, happy about that. But I think Mr. Patey, the headmaster, realized I was learning how to work. This is a big problem I'm seeing with a lot of kids today with labels, is not learning how to work. This needs to start with chores for little kids, middle school, paper route substitutes. If you belong to church, yeah, let's get into all the church jobs, helping out at the farmer's market, walking dogs, working on a community newsletter. It can be volunteer, but it needs to be on a schedule. In Colorado, we can put kids into safe retail at 14. Yeah, but I don't know about here in Washington what the rules are. But as soon as they're going to retail, they need to get a job in a store. They've got to learn how to work. I'm seeing this as a major problem. I'm seeing too many smart kids with honors. They don't know how to grocery shop at age 18. They don't know how to do a bank account. I mean, they haven't learned any of just these basic things like this to learn working skills, being on time. I talked to a counselor, and the kids they had in this college, and this was last year I talked to them. This wasn't 10 years ago. It was last year I talked to this counselor, college counselor at a college. They had about 40 kids there that were labeled Asperger, smart kids. And I asked him what the biggest problem was. He said time management. He said 70% had time management issues. I didn't have an easy time when I was in college. Social was hard. Time management was not an issue. That was pounded into me, being on time for meals. Losing my homework, I wasn't doing that. But I was one of the kids where normal school didn't work. So what if we pull this smart high school kid out and homeschool him? You better get a job.
Okay, and if we live in a state where it's 16, uh, you got to remember, we come from construction. And they are building a new parking ramp right next to our building right now, and they block the road all the time. And do they ask permission every time they block that road? Uh-uh. they got to get the job done. Put the kid in the informal economy. You know, it's something safe. I was doing adult construction at 15, not suggesting that. But how about helping out at a tax office? You know, office work. Working in a little independent florist shop for a little cash. Because these kids have got to learn the discipline and the responsibility of having a job. Okay, you will go to work for Google, I think 15 or 20%, you can do whatever you want. But the rest of the time, you have to do the thing that Google assigns you to do. You've got to learn that skill. Teaching number concept. Little kids, they got to learn numbers apply to different, a variety of different objects. Two people, two pens, two shoes. Well, wait a minute, shoes are pairs. Maybe that's just one thing. Two insects. Adding, uh, cooking is a great way to teach all kinds of math concepts. Work the math into it. Fractions, cutting up a pizza. But I was reading a book on teaching math, and they said, oh, you've got to use a number line. Don't use the cutting up pizza or fruit. Well, for me, I would need to cut the apple up first, and then I can relate that to the number line. Fine, we're going to use the number line. But I want to use the apple and the pizza first so that I can mark, here's half the number line. That's like half the pizza. Then I'll start to make that connection. Teaching position words. A lot of these kids, you got to use several different examples, specific examples to teach concepts like up and down and in or beside. You got to do that with all your position words. Now, I was more interested in looking at pictures of things than looking at pictures of people. Again, a brain can be made more thinking or a brain can be made more social emotional. Think about the music mixing board. There's a big range here, big range. Well, we need people interested in things. Tesla, who invented the power plant, would be labeled autistic today. In the book Neurotribes, there's a description of Cavendish. He discovered the principles of electricity. He would be labeled autistic today. And then what about little Albert Einstein? What's going to happen to little Albert Jr. today? Now I've got to see if we, maybe we need to stop here and go to questions. Normally, I don't look at my, just looking at the time, uh, it rang, it vibrated, it goes back in the pocket. I'm not going to answer it, that's for sure. Um, but we're just before uh, uh, 10 o'clock, and um, I think we'll do a few questions, and then, uh, then I'll sign some books. But let's do a few questions right now, right at this point. Okay, um, I know they've got a mic um, that's going to be able to rove around, I hope. Maybe somebody here in the front has a question. I can uh, uh, just repeat the question. Come on. Nobody has a question? I'm going to pick somebody. Come on. Okay, right here. Make it real quick. The adult child. Okay, you've got to, okay, this is a problem. I talked to you earlier. You've got somebody that's um, got a lot, really a lot of talent, but doesn't have any confidence. Well, one of the things you got to do is uh, help this person get some jobs. This person's in art. Well, this is getting into the second part of my talk. Um, a lot of people don't realize how good some of their work is. You showed me some of the work on the phone. One thing good is you have 
her work on the phone so you could show it to me. Let's get her some commissions and start having her have some success with selling some art. And she already did sell some art. Then you're going to realize that the stuff is worth something. I build up my freelance business one job at a time. I started with sign painting first. And what I learned on paint and signs went into designing cattle handling facilities. You start when, you, when you're doing a business where you use something like art talent or programming talent, and you're working freelance, you start one satisfied customer at a time, and you start building up a portfolio. You need to go get your daughter some jobs. That's what you need to do. Get the good work on, the, on your phone and um, show it to people and get her some commissions. That's how she's going to start getting confidence. Because I've heard sad stories where a brilliant artist turned down a scholarship at a major art school because she didn't have the confidence. That's when the teachers and everybody should have twisted her arm more to get her to do it. So another question. Another problem is all the perfectionism stuff and destroying really good work. In your book, The uh, Autistic Brain, you talk about the switch from the DSM-4 to DSM-5 and the app. Um, okay, wait a minute. I talk about what now? I couldn't understand. The DSM-4 to DSM-5 Oh, yeah, they keep changing the diagnostic categories. Right. So you, you, you know, they, they changed it. It used to be autism, you had speech delay and then the social problems. And then in early 90s, you got the Asperger with no speech delay, separate, socially awkward, no speech delay, separated from socially awkward and speech delay. Then in 2013, the whole thing got blobbed together. It's been a gigantic mess. What I want to try to do is to get you away from that. What does this kid look like? I mean, I have 10-year-olds walk up to me, and I go, wait a minute. I did a talk at NASA. I've seen the gray hair of this kid. Or I go over to Silicon Valley. I've been to Microsoft. I've been to Google, JPL. been to SAS, a bunch of different places. All right, here's a 25-year-old kid with a really good programming job. He looks exactly like the 12-year-old kid I saw at this autism meeting yesterday. You see, I don't get into the labels. What's this kid like? I'll go to a gifted conference to see these little, geeky little kids, 10 years old, but they're playing with the Brock Manji scope at the gifted conference and having a great time away from the screen. I'll go over to the autism meeting. I see another little 10-year-old, exact same kind of kid, clinging to mom. She's doing all the talking for him. They're the same little geeky kid. But you see, I don't think about it in words. And I want to see, I want to just some, snatch some of those kids out of that. Because some of the funnest stuff I ever did was working in construction. We had to figure out how to make stuff work. Even if you got a mean plant manager, you still got to figure it out. And then I had the jobs I had the great plant manager. Oh, I had every kind of boss that was from awful to wonderful. Okay, over there, wherever, whoever's got the mic. So, I can't tell where the sound's coming from. Okay, right there, okay. Is anybody working on policy so that educators can get a relief oh, from the one-size-fits-all? One of the, the problems with educational policy, it's so top-down, it is ridiculous. <laughs> it's so top-down, it is totally ridiculous. Because I'm seeing too many smart kids becoming recluses in their room. I'm hearing way too often, he's 21, I can't get him off the video games, and now he's on social security disability payments. And that I, let me tell you about all the misfits I worked with in construction. I've seen whole maintenance crews at big plants that I know are on the autism spectrum. I know a guy who's dyslexic, ADHD, bad speech impediment, probably autistic, took welding in high school, started making things and selling them. 
He owns a gigantic metal fabrication company. He's in his 50s now. This makes me crazy. As I go back and forth between the silos of cattle world, construction world, then I go to an autism meeting, then I go to a gifted meeting, and I've made a point. My speaking engagement's now of jumping between the silos. I'm deliberately doing that with my talks because I think it's important, especially on this education stuff, try to get out of these silos because it really drives me nuts when I go into a classroom and you got nonverbal, very severe kids in there, and then there's one 12-year-old that I know is really smart, and he's just messing around on websites. That's not okay. Oh, back to the homeschooling. High school kids, if you pull them out, they're working. You got a high school kid um, that um, uh, needs to be pulled out of school, get him a job. If he's, if he's 14, and I can get him a job in Colorado. If he's 16, uh, might have to put him in the informal economy. We got to get the job done. And he's going to finish up high school online. And I want to prepare him for a career. Take those programming classes, take those art classes, whatever it is that will prepare him, prepare him for a career. And let him try on different things that can be careers. Find out if he likes auto mechanics. I talked to one mom. Her kid loved engines, but he thought he didn't like auto shop because it's too dirty. But you know what he does for a job now? works in an auto parts store. And he's memorized the part number for every product in the store and doesn't use the computer anymore. And they love him. What's the difference between, or how do you, how do you tell when you're working with kids, maybe, what's the difference between um, quitting and, and just moving on to something that you're better at? Well, I don't, that's almost too vague. I almost can't understand that. I've so, got like, to, how do you know when it's, um, when, if somebody, if, if a, a young kid, like, let's say, 7 to 10, or, or I don't know. Or 7 to 10, that's right, when the, if they're good or bad at math, tends to show right, up. Right, exactly. So, they, they stink at algebra, but they're great at geometry. Then give them geometry, then. And, and, and how do you... Put them through trig and calculus, and then we petition to get out of algebra. And is that based on, on what you're seeing? <laughs> Is it based on what you're seeing, though, and their success, or is it based on how they're reacting? My, uh, in, in construction, you have to completely finish the job. Let's say it's new plant construction. And you got a lot, I just talked to a, a customer right there. I was talking to them. They're building a pork slaughter plant, and I was just talking to them right now about how to deal with the contractors. And one of the things I told the client, and I was sitting in that chair right over there this morning, I said, you better have a contract to make that equipment company give you two weeks of dedicated technician startup time because it's complicated stuff. Too many times the equipment companies walk off the job before the equipment's started up. That plant's not finished until you've started up and you need to put that in your contract. And I told this people that were, that were planning this job, I was sitting in that chair right over there this morning that. You see, you're not finished with the job until the kid gets out, gets a job, um, stays out of trouble with the law, gets and keeps a career he likes, has a reasonably happy life. You haven't finished the job. And that plant, I told her that her pork plant was not finished until that equipment company gave him a minimum of two weeks of dedicated time with technicians and millwrights to fix the stuff that goes wrong with the equipment because it's not finished before then. That's the kind of mentality we need to have. And I said, you get that in your contract, I'll help you write your contract because I've seen too many times where the equipment company walked off the job and didn't start it up right. Our ultimate goal is where does this kid go? And then, of course, there's all kinds of other problems. The kid's getting abused, and that really messes things up. But I think it's really bad 
when I go to a community college, and here's a girl that's not allowed to take biology because she hadn't passed algebra. I found that out after my talk because I would have bashed them at community college even though I was speaking there. We've got to get into thinking about, uh, and there's a point where, you know, they're just not getting the algebra. Try a different kind of math. And do you need algebra to fix cars? No. What do you need? You need sixth grade math. That you do need. And for the things that I did on the stip bets, I had to be able to find the volume of a tank. That I know how to do. And you have to, since part of it's triangular, you know, and also the thing had sloped sides, so you have to take the, uh, the width measurement at the middle of it. Yeah, I know how to do that. That's sixth grade math. I think at this point we'll go ahead and take a break so Temple can do, uh, if anybody's interested in buying books, I'm sure by now you need to stretch. We'll come back at 10.30. Educators who want clock hours, the forms are out there for you to sign. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>